We are actually going to take a little bit of a break this week. Uh, we've been working through a sermon series on uh, the 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, his ministry, resurrected ministry. Uh, but we're taking a break today uh, and so we, that we can hear um, from the Reverend John Crosby, who's with us. Uh, John is the RUF campus minister. RUF is an uh, organization, uh, campus ministry of our denomination uh, that puts ordained campus ministers on the campuses uh, of universities throughout the country. And uh, John Crosby, who's with us today, uh, is the minister at the University of Memphis. And so uh, it is a real uh, pleasure and joy to have you with us today, John. And uh, come break open the Word of God to us. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you guys again. Um, just uh, just before, I, before I read scripture, just to say um, thank you for your support of RUF at Memphis. You guys support us, and um, it, it's, we've had a, a great year. It's been neat to see the Lord work. Uh, we're, we're taking a group of about 20 students to summer conference, which is a big deal for Memphis. Uh, and two of them are it's a Muslim couple that's going with us. Um, so we're, we're just have, we're, we're so excited that, uh, uh, that, that they're going with our group. We have this great group, two of which are in the back, uh, back row who came to, to cheer me on, I guess this morning. And, uh, but, uh, they're not Muslim students. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but we're just so excited. Please be praying for, for summer conference. We leave, um, in about a week and a half, maybe a week. And, uh, and so we're praying for this, these, those two students, they have been coming to RUF, and that he has been asking me questions, um, and, and it is it's just some great stories to tell from this semester. So very encouraged, and thank you seriously for your for y'all support of us um, at RUF. We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning, this model of repentance, uh, and, and let me, so let me read God's word. Psalm 51, we'll read kind of the whole thing. It's printed out there in your bulletin. Let me make sure I read the same thing. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inner, in, inward being. You teach me with wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let, my, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my, trans, all my iniquity. I, I memorized a, a different version, and it's, it's like coming back. Um, where was I? Okay, verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud 
of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, you are gracious, and you are kind. Father, you know each one of us this morning sitting in in these pews. You know what our weekend was like. You know how hard it was to get children to church this morning. Uh, You know um, the fears and anxieties of our hearts. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged by your word. We'd be encouraged by who you are. Be reminded of this model of repentance and be empowered by your character and your love and your covenant promises this morning. Father, we thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. A paradox is, is, a, is a statement um, or a preposition that seems to be kind of self, self-contradictory or a little absurd. Um, but in reality, it expresses like this possible truth it could be true like kind of like a like a would be like a wise fool um or bittersweet um i i consider myself quite a paradox um i am chubby but athletic and uh it could be true um there could be some truth there sounds a little self-contradictory but in reality could be true I believe, really, um, we see a paradox in this psalm. Like, there is a paradox here. And it seems self-contradictory, but in reality, it expresses this truth. You have the humbleness of David alongside, like, this boldness of David at the same time. The paradox of, of like, humility and this meekness. Um, and this boldness, daring audacity. Like this psalm is a model for how to start again. It, here we learn how to repent. Christianity is not just this idea. It is a way of life. We embody this community life that we join in. And we learn to repent by seeing it modeled um, as well as by understanding this very doctrine of repentance. As a father and as a husband, I fail all the time. And actually, if they were here this morning, they would, they would probably go, amen. You know, they, they really would. Like, I fail all the time. I say the wrong things. I do the wrong things all the time. But I try before my boys and my wife to purposefully and intentionally Go and confess and ask for forgiveness. I feel like I do that every night. Like I feel like all our days end with me by their bed saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like I'm in, in working with students, and I've heard this so many times from students that, that have never heard or rarely have ever heard their parents say sorry. Never, never, never heard them say sorry. Have never heard them confess and ask for forgiveness. They have, they've never heard their parents talk about their struggles and their brokenness and their failures. Look, I, I don't do this well all the time, um, and I, but, I, but I hope that my boys, I'm, I'm sitting in my car with my 15-year-old, um, and all the, things that he's, all the things the world is throwing at him, and just even trying to tell him um, that, 
that I'm broken too with the sin and I, and I need Jesus all the time. That I'm contrite. I want them to know that I'm broken over my sin and contrite. And I hope that they will see a man who needs Jesus every moment. Verse 17 says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Look, like bef- David and God didn't have to put this psalm in the Bible. Like they didn't have to do it. And yet I don't think they did it to satisfy like our curiosity of what was going on in David's heart after he committed adultery and murder. This is a model for God's people. It's a model for how we know that we actually belong. It's a model for those who know they're actually in. But, but look, before we jump in, like, but if you're one of those who are not sure, if you're, if you're unsure about this God, this, this Heavenly Father that loves, that pursues, um, that forgives huge sinners and embraces them. Like if you're one of those, if you're, if you're here, like you're getting a front row seat this morning. Like a front row seat to what it's like to be a Christian. Like what it's all about. It's the, it's the nitty gritty of Christianity. It's the down and dirty of the heart of a believer, a sinner, someone who doesn't have it all together, someone who doesn't de- deserve forgiveness, but gets it only because of God's great compassion and love. You know, I know it's Sunday, and we, you know, we, we all dress up, our kids are, everybody is so still. Look, at, look how still you, like, and, and kids are behaving, you know, and kids are not crawling under pews, and we can, we can look around and compare our families and think, man, like, Every, these people have it all together. Look at look at that family. They're, look at that boy reading the Bible. You know, we and we and we look around and we think, oh man, everybody has it all together. But look, if you if you feel that way, that anxiousness as a mother, I mean, my wife feels it all the time. Like, oh, my kids are like fighting in the pew. Like, remember that. Like, nobody has it all together. No one here. No one here has it. I don't have it all together. I'm a professional Christian. Like, I get paid to be a Christian. I do not have, I do not have it all together. Look, one, one commentator writes in his, about this psalm, in about verse 1, he says this. He says, the opening plea, have mercy, is language of one who has no claim on the very favor that he begs. But steadfast love is this covenant word. It's this Hebrew word, hesed, which means covenant love. And then he goes on, he says this. I love this. About this first opening, opening sentence. He says, for all of his unworthiness, for all of David's unworthiness, he still knows that he belongs. He still knows that he's in. Do you know that this morning? For all of your unworthiness, that you still belong to Christ. You're his as a believer. Look, I have two points. Don't get too excited about that because I have sub points. Um, but two points and then an application. But there, here's the, I want to try to make these points. First, that there is great humility in seeing our sin for what it really is. There's great humility in seeing our sin for what it really is. Secondly, there's great boldness in seeing our Father 
for who he really is, and then we'll, we'll just we'll close it out there with an application. Um, so the first point, there's great humility in seeing our sin for what it really is. Like, look, look again at verses, verses 2 through 5. Um, I have them. Here we go. 2 through 5. Have mercy on me. Oh, that's the first one, sorry. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like there is great humility and seeing our sin for what it really is. And I want, I want to say three things. Here comes those subpoints. Like three things under this point. Like all sin, all sin is against God at its core. Secondly, all sin makes us outcast. And that we should never be shocked by our sin. For like all sin is, is against God at its core. Like, like David is not saying that he hadn't sinned against others. Like, he is getting to the very heart of the matter here. Like, all sin is ultimately against God. Like, sin against our neighbors or sin against God because they are God's image bearers. Luther said that all sin is the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And then look at the end of verse 4. That you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. When you, can, when you see your sin for what it really is, we can agree with God's judgments on that sin. And we're set free from having to even pretend and trying to offer these excuses. So we see that God's mercy is the very basis for honesty. Verse 4, David offers no excuses. He doesn't offer excuse. He's only concerned to justify God. There's this true rest in, in just stopping from pretending and excuse-making before God. Like, no one has, has cause to accuse God of, of judging unfairly. And those who do probably really don't adequately understand their own sin, perhaps. But for us to taste the sweetness of the gospel, we must taste the rottenness of our sin. Secondly, just to point out, like, like all sin is against God of his core, but also sin makes us outcast. Like, David uses this image, these images of blotting out something that's written. Like, this, this, this cleaning dirty clothes. Like, the idea that, that sin makes us unclean, which means we, we must be separated from God's presence. You get this idea in Leviticus 15. Like, think about it. How, how we hate being outsiders, right? We hate not being like on the inside. I, I think about the stuff I've done over the years to try to fit in, like to be accepted. I remember as a junior high student, some of you are going to totally like resonate with this when I say this. I remember when parachute pants were cool. Like <laughs> these were these hideous pants and you had to have the right ones. Like, and, and they were the expensive ones, of course. And, and I remember, like, I remember my mom going to Kmart and buying me the cheap ones. And she brought home these cheap parachute pants. 
And I was like, what? you got to be kidding me. But I put them on in hopes to fit in. And I wore them one day and never wore them again. Felt a lot of shame. But the things we do to like to fit in. Look, the gospel means that we really fit in. Verse 10, literally, this make me hear joy. One commentator says that this is a picture of an outcast being welcomed back into society with all the cheers and rejoicing that would involve. Like this is a picture of what we get in the gospel. This is a picture of what you get when you, when you come to that place and you see your sin for what it really is and you trust in Jesus as your Savior. Like the fact that we're made to belong, like, like we're made to belong and when we can't belong, like we go to these great lengths to fit in. Like peer pressure is precisely so powerful because we're made to bask in the approval of another. And we get that in the gospel. Like we really get that in the gospel. How much energy do you spend to try to fit in? To, to only to, to fail. To not really fit in. To have Kmart parachute pants put on you. How much energy did Jesus expend so that you would fit in? The good news is that his effort, Jesus' effort, is actually effectual. It actually works. It actually gets you in. And we can rest in that fact. We can rest in the forgiveness that he alone purchased by his life, death, and resurrection. And we rest in knowing like, that we fit in because of Jesus, because of Christ. All sin is against God at its core. All sin makes us outcasts. And then thirdly, we should never be shocked by our sin. Like, it, sin is not this freak occurrence. Like, I don't, I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you, you drive around like I do. I don't really do this. But, like, when a, when a car pulls out in front of me, it cuts me off, and I get angry. And I don't, I don't go, I, I can't believe I just got angry. What? I can't believe I'm sinning, right? We're never like, we, we should never be shocked by our sin. We should never be, I mean, never caught off guard from our sin. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But, but we should mourn over our sin for sure. Like, we should grieve over our sin, but we should never fool ourselves. We should never fool ourselves that there, there's some sins that we could never commit. Could David have thought that he would commit adultery and murder before he did those very things. And I want to make this point too, like that repentance starts by seeing that it's, that it's my sin. It's my sin. It's not someone else's sin. Look at all the personal pronouns in this passage. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Like, repentance starts by, by seeing that it's my sin. It's not someone else's sin. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 17 through 20, that it's, it's out of the heart that flow the evil of our lives. Like, there's plenty of evil in our hearts. I'm always amazed when people take comfort in the fact that 
you know, that God looks on the heart. You know, this is like such a little southern thing, right? Like my mother does this. You know, we'll be sitting around the dinner table and somebody will come up, you know, somebody in, the t- in town and, and she'll whisper a little bit. Yeah, but, but God looks on his heart. You know, and, and that's supposed to be good news, you know, that God looks on his heart. You know, he, this God does something crazy, and, but God looks on his heart like, oh, it's better because you whispered it and, and whatever. Like, that's supposed to be good news. That's terrible news. That's actually terrible news. Our hope is that God forgives sin and he cleanses our hearts. You know, that hope is based on God's covenant, his promises, and his character, and who he is. Like, which brings me to the second point. Like, there's great humility in seeing our sin for what it really is. And secondly, my second point today is just, there's great boldness in seeing our sin for who he really is. Our repentance is not, it's not groveling. Like, we're not, we're not to be groveling it's, it's having the audacity like, and the boldness to hope in the promises of God and who he actually is for you. Look, as a father of three boys, I can get my kids to do things um, like because they know me and they trust me, which after this illustration, you'll wonder why. But, but you, they, I can get them to do things that I wouldn't do myself. Like, I, I, I can get them to eat things, to try things that I wouldn't eat. And, and it's so true. Like, hey, there's a worm. Tastes good. Eat it. Okay. And literally, like, I'm, that ba- I'm a bad father. I just want to confess that. Like, there have been times where, like, even now, coming to Memphis, um, f- nobody told me this when we moved back to Memphis, that the, the dirty little secret, and if you're living in East Memphis, is... They're roof rats, right? Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all live out, maybe out here, and you're like safe from them. But so we, we had roof rats in our home we just bought. And, and I'm like, hey, um, go check those traps in the attic, boys. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'll, you, you should learn how to pull the attic door down. And they do it. And they go up because I'm scared. And, and I can get them to do things because they trust me. I'm like, no, there are really not any critters up there. But they'll do it. They trust me in what I say, which is crazy. Um, but, but because they trust in who I am, like, it gives them boldness to do things that I would ask them to do. Now, what we see in David here is this, this outflow. This outflow of boldness because he knows, he knows the Father, he knows the Father. He understands what has been promised, and he knows like who his Father is for him. Look at verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Like David can cry out to God because he knows that he belongs. He belongs because God's made his promise to him to always be his God. And this is called this covenant, we use that language. It's this covenant, this promise. It's this very important concept to understand. God tells David about this promise in 2 Samuel 7. The word used here in verse 1 is this word hesed. Like it's this word that means covenant love, this, this love secured 
by God's promise. David's, David's love was secured by God. And, and that's the basis of his boldness and his, and his confidence. Just, just last night I did a wedding, um, and, I, and my charge was from Deuteronomy 7, um, 6 through 8, which say, what says this. It says, for you are, you, are a, you are a people holy to the Lord God, for the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore. Then I told the couple that a, co- a covenant relationship says that I don't love you because you are love worthy. I don't love you because you're love worthy. A covenant says I love you because I promise to love you. I, I love that. I, I stole that from someone. Um, but, that, but that's what you have. We actually... David here actually hope has this hope for a future, um, and we can too, this hope for this future that we don't even deserve. And you see this here, verses 6 through 8, that we're all these future verbs that are all through here. David, David is confident, and thus he praises God by declaring his confidence by saying, you will teach me wisdom. You will Cleanse me from, with hyssop, and I will be clean. You will wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You will let me hear joy and gladness, and the bones you have crushed will rejoice. And when God does something, like, it actually gets done. Like, it gets done. When God promises, it will be accomplished. Like, for no matter we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that for no matter how many promises God has made, they are actually yes in Christ. God's covenant promise is a source for boldness, but also his character. Um, God's character, who he is, is also a source for boldness. I went on and told that couple last night um, that his love is not based on your loveliness but it's based on his character and who he is. Like David appeals to God's great compassion. Verse 1, using this word that comes from womb, like this, this word that comes from womb which refers to like God's tender love. Um, he also recognizes that God is just, and, he's, and, he's, and he rightly, in verse 4, condemns sin. So how can David be, be bold? Because he knows that God is this promise-keeping God who, who made this oath with him. And thus, he, and thus what he desires in us, he will actually make in us. It will happen. He, he asked God for a miracle of a clean heart in verse 10. And because, he's, because of he, he has confidence that God will do it, like he's bold. He, he is conscious of the Lord's salvation in verse 12. So he knows that God is merciful. And David knows that he, about the giving of his Holy Spirit in verse 11, so he knows that God is actually generous. 
David, David did not think that God would take his Holy Spirit away as he did to Saul because God, who is this promise-keeping God, had made that very promise to him back in 2 Samuel 7, 15 and 16. David's pleading in verses 9 through 12 is full of confidence because he is pleading with a God who keeps his promise. Not because you're lovely, because he's a promise keeper. We see God's promise of salvation. We see his great love for us in giving um, his one and only son at the cross. He loves us in a ridiculous way. There's great humility in seeing our sin for what it really is. There's great boldness in seeing our God for who he really is. But look, I want to say this, too, and just quickly. There's a lot of things I could, you, could, you could apply here. Um, when we understand and we see our sin for what it really is and we, and we see God for who he really is, it, it actually changes things. It changes how we pray. It changes how we worship it changes how we tell others about Jesus. I, I mean, I could, I could make f- four more subpoints just right there, and I'd really blow up my two-point sermon. But I'm not. But I'm going to bring out one of those things, how, how, how it changes um, the way we tell others about Jesus. Just think about this real quick. Um, verses 13 through 15 say, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return, return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Um, years and years ago, uh, there was a guy in town, Jean LaRue, preached a sermon. Um, and the title was, why bad people make great evangelists. Like, I love that. It's so true. Basically, he's saying that he says that broken and humble people make the best evangelists because um, who wants to hear testimonies from people who have it all together? Like, I mean, I don't. Um, but David doesn't have that kind of testimony. He doesn't have that kind of testimony. He doesn't have it all together. And God sure has blessed Psalm 51, like which is this fulfillment, actually, of what David asked for in verses 12 through 15. No psalm has probably led more sinners back to the, to the grace of God than this sinner. Jack Miller wrote, or quote, says, he says, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Like, we're just beggars. We don't have it all together. And God blesses these kind of evangelists because they lead people to Jesus. They lead people to Jesus and not themselves in their own story about how they got it all together. How they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Look, Jesus saves sinners. Like this, this is our hope. Like Jesus saves sinners. This is our hope. This is our message. We should glory in it. We should glory in it. When we understand and see our sin for what it really is, and we see our God for what it, who he really is, it changes the way we pray. It changes how we worship. It changes how we tell others about Jesus. And my prayer for this church um, would be that we, 
you would be a church that is, that is, that is marked by this paradox. This paradox of when you deal with your sin together, that you would have humility and boldness. Let's pray together. Father, you indeed are gracious and kind. Your steadfast love endures forever. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the table that is set before us this morning that reminds us of the costly love to have us, to be able to be called sons and daughters. Father, we thank you for Christ. May we model repentance for our children, for our wives, for our husbands, for our church. It's your name we pray. Amen.